I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James 2. We'll continue our time in the book of James tonight and finish a, a section about the, the sin of partiality. Partiality. James chapter 2. James 2, it will be in verses 8 through 13, but for context, let's read from the beginning of the chapter, James chapter 2. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and Fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Pray with me. God, tonight we ask that you would use your word in our lives to do a work only you can do. Help us to approach your word with utmost humility and honesty, uh, knowing, God, that full well the work of your Spirit is helping us to comprehend truth and to be convicted of it. And so we submit to your word and your work, God, and we ask your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a silent killer ravaging homes across America. But this silent killer hardly ever actually kills. Black mold is often referred to as the silent killer uh, because it is often undetected and rarely considered Yet, it is a prominent cause for a variety of illnesses for many Americans. Mold problems are often caused by water damage or high humidity levels. And so many people who live with black mold breathe in what we call mycotoxins. We're on the wrong side of campus for that. But mycotoxins from mold are, you guessed it, toxic to the human body. 
And they cause, apparently, according to at least a few websites, runny noses and bloody noses, asthma and allergies, gut issues, uh, autoimmune conditions, unexplained weight gain, okay, fatigue, mood swings, mm -hmm. skin issues, recurrent yeast infections, detoxification issues, hormonal imbalances, unexplained high LDL cholesterol levels. I like the last bullet point on this list. The bullet point reads, the list is endless, basically. Black mold is, of course, definitely not in any of your apartments in Westwood, but it's something that many live with for long periods of unexplained sickness, unsure of the cause and unaware of the danger that's found in the walls or under that carpet that you think it is. When you actually finally figure out that you've got mold, uh, usually after dozens of paranoid Google searches and a free account on moldforums.com, you find action plans. Mold action guides, or what they call mold management plans, or mold remediation plans. All of these plans begin with a very simple get out. And then they present a variety of treatments, both homemade and professional, both essential oil-based and chemically-based. Of course, if all else fails, just burn it all down. Mold. Black mold, the silent killer. Our topic tonight in James 2 is a sort of silent killer. You see, uh, on a scale of how bad is this sin? Partiality is a 0.625 to the 9.9s of murder and adultery. And it's not nearly as bad as like a 4 or 5 that's stealing or lying. Partiality is a secret a hidden sin, something we've grown accustomed to living with, accepting as part of our lives. It rarely bubbles up out of our hearts and is obvious to other people. But maybe that's exactly the problem. Maybe most of us in this room have partiality growing in our walls. Uh, more of us live with this respectable sin than we'd like to admit to steal a Jerry Bridgesism. Partiality is a silent killer. Our passage tonight is a sort of action plan against partiality. It's a game plan as to how we can exercise true faith first in our hearts and then setting our love and our affections on others in a way that demonstrates God's mercy. So let's look at this three-step action plan against partiality, one in which we will see, again, like last week, that those with true faith must Put aside partiality and love others with the love of Christ. If you have true faith, you will put aside partiality and love others with the love of Christ. The first step in our action plan is found in verse 8. It's this. Understand the heart of the matter. Understand the heart of the matter. Uh, here in this passage, James shows us that the very heart of this issue, the very heart of partiality, the essence of what the, the whole matter is, is that it's a failure to love 
others as God requires. Partiality is a failure to love others as God would require. And James shows us this by looking at what it is to be impartial. Look again at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You see here, James is giving a positive assessment of the person who shows no partiality. Because this person obeys what James calls the royal law, or literally the kingly law. You see, to James, James's Jewish audience, this is an obvious reference to uh, part of the Mosaic Law found in Leviticus 19.18. It says there, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Yahweh gives the reason, for I am the Lord. This is Yahweh commanding his people, Israel, to treat their brothers like brothers. To not retaliate or let ill will linger against one another, but instead, positively, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, this was familiar to James's Jewish audience, and is familiar to us, uh, not just because of Leviticus 19.18, but because Jesus also talked about this royal law. Turn to Matthew 22 to see this. Matthew 22. Look at verse 34. Matthew 22.34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Yet here in Matthew 22, we see in answering this test from the lawyer, the Pharisee lawyer, Jesus sums up the law. He says, love God and love God. These are the two crown jewels, the two greatest commandments of the law of God uh, here in Matthew 22. And they're set forth by who? By Jesus, the King of Kings. Uh, the only one who could and would fulfill all of these things perfectly. Uh, the one who pursued love for his father and for fellow man even to the point of death. If we consider it for a moment, this really is a sort of profound truth about the nature of God's law, which, uh, if we think about God's law, often to us it can uh, appear so complex and contextual and specific. Uh, but Jesus is saying all of God's revelation to his people, Israel, applies to all people of all times. Why? Because everything is linked to or could be summed up by these two commands. Love God and love people. And so as we consider this royal law, let's turn to Romans chapter 13 and see this same truth. Uh, displayed at a slightly different angle. Romans 13. Romans 13, starting in verse 8. 
Paul writes there, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here in Romans, we see that this love that we are to have as God's people for each other, for our neighbor, is an encapsulation, uh, verse 10, of God's law. And Paul again, Galatians 5, 14, affirms and even simplifies it even more. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is the royal law that James is referring to. Turn back to James. And the command to show no partiality fits into this assessment. You see, if you show no partiality, if you show no favoritism, this is loving others. This is fulfilling the royal law. Uh, the very heart of this partiality, impartiality issue in James is love. At the core, at the very center of the issue, this isn't just that you give equal seats to everybody in the room, or that you pretend like you don't see differences in height and weight and skin color and clothing brand, but it's this, that from a heart flowing with love in the face of these differences and preferences and realities, you choose to set your love on others and love them, as Paul says in Romans 13, with a genuine love. Not because of how somebody looks or because of their personality, but because you and they are made in the image of God. Love God and love others. This is a love that fulfills and obeys the royal law of God, James is saying here. It's a sacrificial love that pursues the good of others above your own good. It's a love that is patient and kind. It's a love that does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. This kind of love has no end. It has no time constraints or eye constraints or annoyance complaints. This is an endless, unhindered, unconditional love. This royal law of love for neighbor is the topic of discussion in Luke 10, where a Pharisee asks, Jesus, that what should I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know the law, you tell me. And the Pharisee says, well, shall love your, the Lord your God and shall love your neighbor. Jesus says, you have spoken correctly. And the smart Pharisee says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer is something we know well. It's the, the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. How a man beaten down and robbed and left for dead was passed by by a priest on the other side of the road. And then a Levite in the same way. And then a Samaritan. The very kind of person that Jews were supposed to hate. 
and nursed his wounds and took him to the end and paid for everything. So Jesus is saying in Luke 10 that this Samaritan, for us, kind of funny, but this Trojan, so to speak, proved to be a neighbor. And he says to that Pharisee, he says, go and do likewise. This is your neighbor, even the person you are expected to hate. You see, Jesus takes this great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and flips it on its head. Every Jew understood this law to mean love your fellow Jewish brother. Love your neighbor. That's the definition. Someone within the people of Yahweh. Not, for, not some good-for-nothing Samaritan. But this is what Jesus is saying. Everyone, including your enemy, is your neighbor. And this is exactly the kind of love that permeates the reign of King Jesus, whose law this is, the royal law. It's a surprising and generous interpretation of law. And it's a love for all others. Jesus in Matthew 5, 44 states this idea plainly. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I believe this is the message of our passage tonight in James. It's an all-encompassing, no-holds-barred sort of love that looks past outward differences and distinctions and instead loves with a genuine love. And so as we create this plan of attack, this action plan against partiality in our hearts, we've got to understand first, the heart of the matter is love. Uh, the issue at hand is love. Do you love like you should? Partiality is a failure to love like we should. And impartiality can and will only come from a heart in which genuine Christian love is cultivated and kept. And so, Grace on Campus, we must first resolve in our hearts to pursue this kind of love. Here in this verse, verse 8, James commends those who are showing no partiality. He says, if you are doing this, if you really fulfill the royal law, you are doing well. Grace on campus, as we seek to eliminate partiality toward others, whether a friend or an enemy or a frenemy, poor or rich, sinner or saint, the goal of this is that we would grow a heart of love toward all others. Everyone. The second step in our action plan is found in verses 9 through 11. It's this. Beware the condemnation of partiality. Beware the condemnation of partiality. You see, as James affirms in verse 8, those who are capturing the heart of God's law by showing no partiality, they're obeying the royal law. In verses 9 through 11, James shows God's condemnation on those who are practicing partiality. Look at verse 9. James writes, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here, James calls partiality like it is. Last week we saw partiality is incompatible with the faith you hold. You can't hold faith in Jesus, the King of glory, in one hand, and then partiality in the other. And then we saw that partiality is a contradiction to the very nature and work of God. Well, here James cuts it straight. He says, it's sin. It's sin. It's a failure to love others. It's disobedience to God. It's the neglect of the very heart and summation of God's 
law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this kind of failure, this kind of neglect, this kind of putting it off for later is sin, James says. And when you commit sin, you're not just committing wrong against others, James says. You are committing wrong against others. Uh, but James is making a point here. Uh, he says, you are a transgressor. Uh, you're convicted. You're found guilty. And James explains and expands this idea of sin before God and being convicted as a transgressor. Uh, look at verse 10. It helps us to understand this. James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James is saying, if you show partiality, what seems like such a small and hidden sin, what seems like a sin so personal and tucked away in your own heart, James is saying is really not so hidden to the God who knows all. If you show partiality, you have broken God's law. You are a transgressor of God's law. And if you are guilty of even just one part, if you show partiality one time, you are guilty of all of God's law. is a mind-boggling concept to us because I think we tend to think on a gradient scale. Our vocabulary is full of kindness. You have a friend explaining something to you doing a bad job and you kind of get it. You think you know how to cook and then you taste Chris's food last week and you only kind of know how to cook now. I may or may not have heard last week in Crossroads somebody say, well, he's sort of good looking. I do. You have a friend who's always very down and sometimes is, and, and, and always somehow is sort of ready for his test. And then you have another friend who's sort of a good driver or kind of good at basketball. As we think of God's law, we can't, James is saying, think on a gradient scale. You see, breaking God's law is like breaking a window. Uh, you can't kind of break a window. You broke the window or you didn't. Uh, you can't kind of break God's law. If you keep the whole law but you fail in one part of it, one point, you become guilty of it. All of it. And I think in our hearts, in our justification of our own souls, we think, how? Why is that fair? Why is that the case? You see, when we think of breaking laws, we think of individual accounts or charges. Three counts of fraud or two counts of assault. But what about God's law makes it this sort of indivisible unit, this sort of composite. James explains this. He gives a real-life, real-law example. Look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I think it's so fast you might miss it. Notice there in the beginning of that verse. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. The indivisibility of the law, the unity of the law is rooted in the fact that it is God who established it all. So any breaking of the law is a transgression against God himself. You see, God who said, do not commit adultery, is the same faithful God who said, do not murder. And James, by implication, is saying he's the same God who says, do not show partiality. And so when you show partiality, if you show partiality, 
you are transgressing God's law and guilty of it all. Every part of God's law is connected. It's equal. It's consistent. It's consistent with God himself. You see, God's law is not just a text or a passage or a code. God's law is the embodiment of his character and his nature. It's a reflection of his love and his wisdom. It's his ways of righteousness graciously revealed. And it's this law that Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill, and to establish it, and to teach it, and interpret it, so that we, as God's people, would reflect his love and his wisdom with our lives. And so here in this passage, James is saying, when we show partiality, we transgress, we break, we shatter God's law. We are as guilty of transgressing God's law as if we had committed sins as heinous as adultery or murder. There is no better or less egregious sin with a holy God. And that's the truth that we see in this text as we consider partiality. Consider what Jesus said about murder in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying, whether you actually murder someone or you murder someone with your thoughts, you are guilty. Consider what Jesus said about adultery in the same Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying whether you commit adultery or you commit adultery in your heart, you are guilty. Jesus is so poignantly calling us all out, that our hands look clean, but our hearts are filthy. Our spiritual resumes are full, but our rap sheets are stapled to the back of them. Whether it's one sin and one time where we show partiality, or 10,000 sins, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. And in this passage, uh, silent killer, partiality, the quiet judgment of our hearts is the lens tonight to examine our hearts to see if there is sin. Tonight's our chance to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness of our partiality and to receive with meekness the implanted word. We've got favoritism stuck in our teeth. And this passage is our mirror. And so let's look into the perfect law of liberty and look how we can be doers of the word concerning this issue of partiality. It brings us to our third step in the action plan, and it's this, found in verses 12 and 13. Answer the call to mercy. Answer the call to mercy to mercy. In these last two verses in our text tonight, James calls us again to show no partiality. But James frames this call, as opposed to the call in chapter 2, verse 1, in a gospel framework, in gospel terms. You see, James calls us here to show mercy as those who have been shown mercy. That James is saying, show no partiality. Show mercy instead. Why? Because you have been shown mercy. Look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged 
under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James has showed us because everyone is guilty of transgressing God's law. Everyone has fallen in at least one point of God's law. Whether it be adultery or lustful thoughts. Whether it be bloody murder or hidden hatred. Whether it be overt, unfair judgment of somebody else carried out in court. Or quiet, internalized partiality in the hidden courts of our hearts. We are all guilty and under judgment. But we have to remember, James here is addressing believers. We'll look back very quickly at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers. We will be judged, James is saying, under the law of liberty. This is a phrase we saw back in chapter 1, verse 25. As is consistent, though, of our understanding of the law throughout James, we need to understand very clearly this is not Mosaic law we're talking about. This is not the law given directly to Israel. But instead, what's in view here is God's law as established, as embodied, as taught by Jesus. So you see, a law under which the Christian is set free from sin and death and given to freedom, freedom to live and love and obey joyfully, and freedom to no longer fear condemnation or guilt of sin. And so as Christians in the New Covenant, we live uh, in this law of liberty. This law that 2 Corinthians 3, 3 says is written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Or Jeremiah 31 says the law is put within us and is written on our hearts. And so under this law, we live out God's ways of righteousness, but as those who are freed from the bondage of sin and death. And so this kind of law, this is the law that Romans 7 calls holy and righteous and good. Because it shows us our sin, but it shows us the way of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. Righteousness, not of our own, but of our Savior. And so James is saying here in verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What he's saying is this. Speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, the law that has already set you free. Speak in love and act in love as those who won't be judged by God and damned to eternal hell, but instead those who will be judged as believers and be given a just reward for your words and your deeds. Speak and act as one whose goal it is to be on that final day told well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Speak and act. Love one another. Show mercy as those who have yourselves received mercy from God. Because judgment, James says, is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. This word mercy is something that we hear tossed around all the time. It's uh, said so often and sung so often, and it's rightfully so. It's all over Scripture. Mercy is compassion uh, towards someone in need. It's love or compassion to someone who is helpless as to themselves, someone who is in need of uh, aid or help. And mercy is twin truths with grace in God's word. But grace focuses often on the undeserved nature of God's kindness and favor. And mercy hones in on our need, our helplessness, our inability to help ourselves. 
And so if you show partiality, James says, if you prefer and discriminate, and you favor the rich over the poor, and you fail to love, you fail to show mercy to the poor who need it, then James says, judgment will be without mercy toward you. James is doing what he does best in this book. He's drawing from the teaching of his half-brother, our Lord Jesus. You guessed it, on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus says there, those who show mercy to others will also receive mercy. If you show mercy to others, though you deserve the judgment and the wrath of God, God will bestow mercy on you in final judgment. Because the mercy that you show others is proof that you understand His mercy. And so James is taking that same truth, but he's flipping it on its head. You see, for those who show no mercy to your neighbor, but instead show partiality to the wealthier and more desirable person, in God's judgment, there will be no mercy because your lack of mercy shows you don't understand God's. You see, if you don't show mercy to the poor and the orphans and the widows we saw at the end of chapter 1, or the awkward and the undesirable, the less cool and the quiet, but instead you ruthlessly pick and choose and you discriminate and you schmooze your way through life, you may perhaps be demonstrating by your actions and your hearts that you've never experienced the mercy of God on your own soul. It's a scary thought. If you speak and act without mercy, I would say, at best, you are a believer, but all of your works will be, as 1 Corinthians describes, wood and hay and straw and will be burned up. You will have nothing to show for the life God has given you in his mercy. And at the very worst, I would say, while you thought you were saved, your continual partiality and your way of thinking through life and relationships and your lack of mercy toward others shows that maybe you never experienced the mercy of God and salvation yourself. It's a stern warning to our souls to examine what we think is just a passing judgment. Maybe a divine indictment on where we are at. Jesus illustrates this truth in parable. Turn over there to Matthew 18 to see this truth. Matthew 18. Matthew 18, look at verse 21. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 
And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now to be fair, the context here speaks of forgiveness of one another. But I believe the truth is the same. Grace on campus, we must not, whether in our lack of forgiveness or in our partiality against others, be like this servant who has experienced the mercy of our master and yet are unwilling to extend that same mercy to other people. You see, the disposition of those with true faith is one of mercy, one of love and compassion toward the needy. The needy physically and the needy spiritually. It's a posture of kindness and winsomeness, firmly believing that words and deeds filled with love and mercy, illustrating and exemplify the very mercy we have been shown by God. For those to whom God has shown mercy, who understand it and have experienced it firsthand, having been freed from the guilt and the condemnation of sin, this kind of mercy toward others is not an act of obligation born under the tyranny of the law, but an act of freedom and joy under the law of liberty flowing from a heart of Christian love. And this is why James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy has the last word. God's judgment is the rightful execution of his justice on all of us. We saw that because we have fallen woefully short of God's law. But the mercy of Jesus will triumph over that deserved judgment in a full and a final way on that last day. So all James is saying here is, in light of that last day, when you will be shown mercy, show mercy. In our lives now, when we are tempted to stand in judgment over others, we must instead answer the call to mercy, to let our merciful actions and words reign over our desire to judge. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so mercy must triumph over judgment in your life. There's a show, the cheesiest show of all time, on television somehow. It's called Caught in Providence. You've seen it, maybe, on Facebook. It's set in a courtroom in Providence, Rhode Island, and the Honorable Judge Frank Caprio presides over the court that deals primarily with minor traffic and parking ticket cases. You know, it's running a red light and missing a stop sign on the way to the hospital with the side of street sweeping. Every defendant on this show has fallen on hard times. Apparently there's a lot of people in Providence, Rhode Island who have fallen on hard times. There's also a lot of college students. And the show goes somewhat similar every single time. Caprio reads the offense. So I see here you have a parking ticket. And I see here that you turned right on a red light when they said you couldn't turn right on a red light. And then, of course, inevitably, they review the embarrassing video of the car turning right when there is a turning on a red light. 
And then, inevitably, Judge Caprio says, well, young man, let me hear your story. And, of course, the young man's got a story. And then, inevitably, in a providential, cheese ball kind of way, Judge Caprio, inevitably, lowers or completely forgives the fine. It's the kind of show that if you've watched one episode, you've seen them all. It's predictable. Scripted, some might compute. Characteristically merciful. Grace on campus, as we consider our own hearts tonight, and the pride and judgment partiality deep within the dark corners of our hearts. Let's ask God to humble us, to help us repent of our sin. That he would help us turn to pursue genuine love toward each other. As Christians, we ought to be the most predictable and characteristically merciful of all people. May we put aside partiality and love others with the love of Christ, speaking and acting with the kind of mercy that we've been shown by God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, for in it, we see the words of life. We see, O oh God, that you and you alone are judge, yet you and you alone have shown us mercy and grace and love like no other. Lord, this passage shows us that we must respond in like kind in love and in worship to you, but in mercy and grace and love toward fellow man. So Father, help us as a group to practice and exercise this kind of a love, a genuine love toward each other here. But Lord God, help us in our love and mercy, in our deeds and in our words, for our testimony of mercy and love to Show the world what it means to be those who have been shown mercy. Father, help us, we pray, not to give us the strength to change our own hearts, but, Lord, the uh, humility and the ability to surrender our hearts to the Spirit's work, even tonight. Father, work in a mighty way, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.